podcast with Dr. Joseph Minnick. He's president and headmaster of Pietas Classical Christian right here in Melbourne, Florida, and studied for an MDiv at Whitfield Theological Seminary. Join me in welcoming Dale Stenberg. All right, well, good morning. Thank you all for uh, making the trek from wherever you're coming from. Uh, it's good to talk about something that I deeply care about. Dr. Merkel, thank you for coming out. Uh, a lot of what I'm going to say is going to overlap with Dr. Merkel's uh, paper, which is perfect, uh, because that was not by design. Uh, that's just the unction of the Holy Spirit doing his thing. So uh, we're very grateful for that. Um, I want us to begin by imagining two students. I want you to imagine student A and student B. Uh, student A has been reading 40 classical books a year since he was in fourth grade. He's memorized his Latin conjugations and paradigms and can recall from memory Shakespeare quotes and can name the works of Leonardo da Vinci. He gets straight A's on his exam and he's well behaved. However, his interest in the subjects about which he learns terminates where his formal assignments end. Student B, on the other hand, reads seven to ten books a year and often gets bogged down in his studies because he doesn't easily understand what he's learning. He's, de he's decent in his Latin studies and struggles to remember the name of authors. He's curious about the big questions that are prompted by the book he reads and talks at length about the thoughts he has while reading them. He listens well and has a rich and colorful imagination. He tends to get emotional when watching the sunrise, and he enjoys fishing and spending time at the beach collecting shells. My question is, which one of these students is embodying the classical spirit? My goal this morning is to argue that classical education should be designed to draw the child to the borders of their knowledge, entering into a contemplative relationship with the unknown, to arrive at understanding, and sitting in joyful awe of being. In order to do that, I want to talk about fear, fulfillment, and festivity. Fear, fulfillment, festivity. And so let's talk about fear first. In the classical approach to education, the first move was to recognize one's own ignorance. In the famous story of Socrates visiting the Oracle of Delphi and being told that he was the wisest of all men, uh, despite his professions of ignorance, he questioned a number of people with a claim to wisdom and in each case concluded, I am likelier to be wiser than he to this small extent, that I do not think I know what I do not. Socrates' life was marked by questioning the seemingly obvious definition of things. Socrates was interested in discovering what the nature of justice is, rather than asking whether something was just or unjust. Instead of determining whether a ruler with great wealth is happy or not, Socrates was interested in what the nature of authority and true happiness and conversely misery really are ultimately in themselves. What becomes clear when one reads Plato's dialogues is how questions about the seemingly obvious would eventually stump the conversation partner and cause frustration. Socrates' goal in doing this was to show his conversation partners that they really didn't know what they claimed to know. 
Of course, Plato, being Socrates' student, was responsible for beginning the first academy. And Plato was committed to following the method of his teacher, that method which is commonly known as the Socratic method of teaching. Classical education, then, first establishes that we are ignorant about the nature of mundane things and brings one to inquire into the meaning of the ordinary before one can move towards an understanding of the complex. Arrival at the understanding of our own limitations about the knowledge of things is what the classical world understood as wonder. In the modern world, we might attribute sentimental definitions to the word wonder. But for the classical philosopher, wonder denoted an emotion of fear. In his book, Poetic Knowledge, James Taylor says, quote, Fear is produced by the consciousness of ignorance, which, because it is man's natural desire to know, is perceived as a kind of abrupt intrusion on the normal state of things, that is, as a kind of evil. Something is seen, heard, felt, and we do not know what it is or why it is now present to us. There can be mild or extreme degrees of fear or wonder at these times. But notice, unlike modern perversions of this natural impulse, such as the extraordinary and fantastic sounds, sights, and sensations artificially produced for a design effect in films and video games, the traditional idea of wonder expressed by Aristotle operates within the ordinary, simply things as they are. Close quote. Similarly, uh, in his Metaphysics, Aristotle talks about the nature of wonder that rises from the poetic impulse to know, which all men experience. Wonder is the impulse that initiates all learning. Aristotle says, quote, It is owing to their wonder that men both now begin and at first began to philosophize. They wondered originally at the obvious difficulties, then advanced little by little, and stated difficulties about greater matters. A man who is puzzled and wonders thinks himself ignorant. Whence, even the lover of myth is, in a sense, a lover of wisdom, for the myth is composed of wonders. For all men begin, as we said, by wondering that things are as they are. St. Augustine also talked about how humans are first summoned to an inquiry of the nature of reality by a sense of wonder when we are motivated uh, to know through our senses within the general appetite of love. For Augustine, to love something is to possess it, and we are not in possession of something until we love it. Love, for Augustine, included all the associations of sensory delight and desire given to man through the act of knowing. The end of knowledge, however, was not the sensory pleasure itself, but it is to possess the vision of beauty and perfection above the senses, which would lead us to the contemplation of God. In his book on music, Augustine says, quote, When the soul experiences physical sensations, it is not being affected by the body, but rather it is acting with more deliberate attention than usual of, uh, because of what the body is experiencing. The body's actions, the senses, do not escape the notice of the soul. 
This is precisely what is meant by sense perception. The function of sensation, which is in us even we, when we are sensing nothing, is one of the body's instruments, which the soul employs with restraint so that, so that it may be better prepared to give conscious attention to physical conditions. This approach to human psychology can help us explain how the ordering of affections towards that which is to be loved and possessed gives rise to a habit of the mind that cashes out in the function of the body and a resettlement of our state of being. In other words, Augustine understood that the faculties which man was given by our creator harmoniously operate together to draw our attention to the creator. Implied in Augustine and is an understanding that man is a composite whole, a physical body and a reasonable soul. Modern notions of the human person are strictly material. The student is trained to make the proper electrical connections in the brain when encountered with outside stimuli in order to regurgitate answers onto a standardized test. In this way, the student is treated more like a dog than a child. But for Augustine and the larger classical tradition, our desires, emotions, and senses affect both body and soul in a reciprocal relationship. In this view, the whole person can indeed be ordered towards beauty, truth, and goodness by living a life of wonder, which in turn affects our physical and psychological state. Ordinary people experiencing this ordinary world with the admission of our ignorance of the ordinary leads one into higher contemplation of the unknown for the purpose of possession and love. Man, qua man, is summoned to the contemplation of transcendental things through the ordinary. Humanity is tuned in such a way as to explore the boundaries of our understanding of things and sniff out some trace that leads us to their ultimate source. Perhaps the word that's been floating around in your mind as we consider wonder is awe. Awe and wonder are indeed inextricably linked. In his commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics, Thomas Aquinas seems to agree, adding that, quote, because philosophy arises from awe, a philosopher is bound in this way to be a lover of myths and poetic fables. Poets and philosophers are alike in being big with wonder. Awe is linked with wonder in that it emerges out of a recognition of one's ignorance of things that are simultaneously order, uh, ordinary and yet beautiful, marvelous, and shocking. Think of student B's emotional response to a sunrise. Awe is not simply located in the senses, however. It generates a physical response in the body as well. There is a phenomenon called piloerection that happens in both humans and animals. In humans, the more common term we use is goosebumps or chills to explain the physical response to awe. Psychologists have studied this phenomenon and concluded that this takes place most frequently when listening to music, but music with a specific structure. According to one study, 
Some musical structures were identified to trigger chills more frequently than others. These structures involve crescendos, the violation of expectations by unexpected harmonies, and the, and the entry of a solo voice, a choir, or an additional instrument. These effects are assumed to require active listening, which involves directed attention and processes of cognitive appraisal. As a more general effect, familiar music pieces are reported to be more powerful in eliciting chills or piloerection than unfamiliar ones. This is an example of what I think uh, Augustine describes when he says, quote, the body's actions, the senses, do not escape the notice of the soul. The function of sensation is one of the body's instruments which the soul employs with restraint so that it may be uh, better prepared to give conscious attention to physical conditions. Wonder and awe are words that we use to describe what happens to the curious person when the created order comes crashing in on their senses and calls their attention to the beauty contained in the normal structures of reality. Wonder, then, is experienced through our senses and emotions as we encounter the world as an uncomprehended other, a presence of being which hides, suggests, and perhaps even promises some greater presence yet to be discovered. Humans are equipped with the faculties that are necessary to inquire about the nature of things, and this act is largely precognitive. Precognitive in that inquiry normally takes place after the encounter. When we experience humor, we do not analyze the situation before determining whether to laugh or not. We simply respond to that which is funny, and then later, upon reflection, we come to appreciate the source of laughter in a more comprehensive way. In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that the Godhead is clearly seen through the things that have been made. And that process begins when our senses encounter the ordinary stuff of life. Intentional contemplation about our lived experiences leads to deeper understanding. What I'm describing is just what it means to be alive. Perhaps this is hard for the modern mind, however. We don't let the ordinary world speak subtly into our consciousness through rested attention to it. Rather, post-industrial persons are habituated to relate to the world as almost entirely an instrument of potential use for some purpose of the human will. At its most extreme, life just is economics. Time is not the sun and the moon, but the clock. Cost-benefit analysis becomes the way to think about the home and Worst of all, it is so easy for the precious image of God to slowly become an instrument, a prop in our pragmatic machinations. We have become utilitarian in all of our efforts to some extent, and I'll talk about this a little bit later in the next two points. The imagination and curiosity of the modern person is calcified due to neglecting the wonder of the ordinary, and it is the job of the educator to humbly escort the student to the perimeter of their understanding and beckon them to look into the void of the unknown. 
Classical education calls attention to the fact that students are alive and indeed that the world is living as well. It is a fearful thing to arrive at the boundaries of one's knowledge and catch a glimpse into the abyss of the unknown. It is our job to help children discover the beauty of the traces of things and then to discover their own ignorance about the nature of the cosmos, helping them experience wonder. Our aim is to create in them a spirit of curiosity that yearns for the satisfaction found in understanding. Curiosity is further cultivated when knowledge is presented as a unified whole rather than as a series of propositions that are unique to a particular course. If analytic approaches in education are primary, then we have atomized creation in a way that presents an apple as a polyphenolic compound rather than a desirable looking piece of fruit that tastes good. I am not claiming education does not entail analyzing what we find in creation, but it doesn't start there. It begins with recognizing the unity of the whole through the experience of the parts. Ancient thinkers were always looking for universal principles to explain the world. They agreed that the universe was ordered and understandable and that all knowledge was interconnected. Plato states it like this, quote, if the studies of all these sciences which we have enumerated should ever bring us to their mutual association and relationship and teach us of the nature of the ties which bind them together, I believe that the diligent treatment of them will forward the objects which we have in view and that the labor which otherwise would be fruitless will be well bestowed. This was, of course, recognized by later Christian educators who had the advantage of the Bible, which allowed them to place the classical understanding of universal principles within the context of scripture. Classrooms are not substantively, substantively different courses composed of unrelated material. All classes are bringing the student into a deeper relationship with the divine mind as discovered through emphasizing contemplation on particular components of the one unified reality. Classical education should be designed to draw the child to the borders of their knowledge to confront a living world which beckons them into itself through their wonder. Let's talk about fulfillment or leisure. Mere arrival at the unknown is not fulfilling. This is why Taylor uh, can above call it an evil, but he's over speaking a bit there. An aching to know is not an evil as such, that is against the good, but the kind of fear and wonder we are talking about, for example, the fear of the Lord, is a kind of good agitation that is relieved in knowledge and love, respectively. I want, to, I want to argue that in order to find fulfillment, one must embrace a life of leisure. And leisure is often misunderstood in the modern world in that it's associated with idleness or sloth. However, in classical thought, Leisure was understood as the arrival at understanding through contemplation. And that contemplation was not laborious, at least not laborious in the way that we understand it. 
The pursuit of discovering truth and growing in knowledge through contemplation is the telos, it's the goal of education. If wonder is bringing students to the borders of their knowledge, then leisure is drawing them into a contemplative relationship with that unknown. When the unknown is understood, the soul is at rest. Leisure is not the moment of inaction, but precisely the moment of doing the relieving action. Contemplation, as well as the movement toward the good in practical action, just is to be at leisure because the faculties are satiated in their longings. Just as we are relieved from hunger in the act of eating, we are relieved in our wonder precisely in the act of learning. And yet the paradox is that each moment of learning is just one catalyst into another act of wonder for the sake of a deeper act of leisure. Once this lifestyle is habituated and becomes the normal algorithm of life, education turns into the very act of living rather than what is accomplished from kindergarten through college. If this vision of education is embraced, our schools become centers of more than mere academic drudgery. They become the training ground for living life well. Etymologically, the word school comes from the Latin scola, which means leisure. Education, therefore, should be a pursuit of contemplation on that which is passively received through an ordinary lived life. The great German philosopher Joseph Pieper uh, argues that leisure is actually the basis of culture. But, he argues, that this notion has been lost in the modern world because of the workaday rhythm of life that is necessary for our continued existence. We have habituated a utilitarian approach to things because our time is limited and the choices we have to make need to result in some defined goal. It's interesting, uh, Max Weber, 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 Weber. We were at dinner last night, and this I said, "Oh, I, I was going to say Weber," and they said, "Don't say that." Well, I said, uh, "Max Weber says in his book uh, that one does not work to live; one lives to work." It's interesting when you compare that maxim with what Aristotle says in his Politics that quote, "Leisure is the center point about which everything revolves." Close quote. Enculturating a contemplative life is near the heart of the Christian message also. Psalm 1 says the blessed man meditates on God's law day and night. Psalm 46.10 says, uh, cease striving and know that I am God. Ceasing to strive is conducive to knowing God. It is from a calm and thoughtful orientation to the world that the mind is free to ascend to the rumination of the very ground of being, the highest good, Almighty God. In our culture, this idea is turned on its head, however, especially within classical schools, where the quality of the program is measured by the quantity of stuff that must be completed. Crafting an environment that rewards careful contemplation may feel awkward to our American sense of hard work. But for the Greeks, as well as for God's people, contemplation of the good, true, and beautiful was the highest aim of man. 
That is simply not possible if we view life in general, and education in particular, as being organized to accomplish some end other than contemplating things for the sake of contemplating things. This utilitarianism is made obvious when we witness education's primary goal reduced to being a conduit into the workforce. This approach turns educational institutions into nothing more than preparation to work nine to five in a cubicle, rather than its original intent of freeing man from his ignorance and leading him higher up the ladder of being to behold the good, the true, and the beautiful, which resulted in the good life. Ora et labora was a phrase that the Benedictine monks used as their motto. It means pray and work. This motto formed the culture of the monastic order and organized the hierarchy of the monks' value systems. Prayer took precedence over, fi- precedence over physical labor. They valued the contemplative life over activity. We can see a parallel to this value structure in the biblical story of Mary and Martha. While Martha reclined at the feet of the Messiah, listening to his teachings and contemplating his message, Mary scurried about doing all all of the active stuff she thought was necessary to entertain Jesus. But Jesus rebukes Mary and tells her that Martha's choice was the better of the two and that her reward should not be taken away from her. Martha, even if she didn't know it consciously, understood that in order to have a culture you need a cultus, or a religious belief system that elevates man over animals, which implies that there is more to life than material things or work to be done. The real treasures of life come from sitting at the feet of the master and contemplating the meaning of his teachings. Distinguishing between the workaday life that is simply assumed to be the norm in the Western world And the leisurely life of contemplation is also necessary for understanding the difference between the artis liberalis and the servile liberalis, or the liberal arts and the servile work. Education was always conceived of as the inheritance of free men. It is the liberating, freeing arts because it taught the art of self-governance through contemplation of the world. Freeing oneself of ignorance allowed one to move up the ladder of social hierarchy since the wise man is not easily ruled by tyrants. Growing in wisdom and learning to govern oneself limits the restrictions that ill-motivated imaginations might conceive of in order to strip one of their agency. It is only when work is contrasted with contemplation that we can make sense of the distinction. And one of the hurdles in the modern world to appreciating leisure is that we have turned busyness into a virtue. Modernity has changed the way we conceive of man and of the very meaning of human existence. Man has been reduced to worker, and human existence has been reframed as work. We have flipped the hierarchy of values on its heads on its head, and from this topsy-turvy vantage vantage point, arranged our institutions, including our homes, churches, and our schools. 
Another way in which this occurs is when the entire classical tradition is instru instrumentalized not to lead to the contemplation of things in themselves, but rather to turn out culture war drones. Even if not driven by the worker bee obsession, the direct attempt to have a spiritually productive army borrows from the mental habit of our culture and robs education of wonder. Because in such a program, everything comes pre-interpreted and inquiry is almost inevitably stifled as soon as an attempt to be educated violates the real goal, which is the pursuit of an agenda set by some other soul. But this is to precisely bypass the freedom of the soul. The human mind is oriented towards truth, and we are equipped with the senses and emotions to experience things in a precognitive way in order to penetrate their truth. This precognitive experience of things through our emotions and senses leads the person to contemplate that which was received in a cognitive way. The life of leisure, then, brings us to the knowledge of not only the particular thing we are thinking about, but something about the entirety of everything. To gather all these phenomena together and deliver them in their unity to the mind is precisely to discover the truth as truth, as available to be known by the mind. This process should be approached from a calm and a silent soul, rather than from a sense of achievement and for no other reason than to know more about God, his creation, and ourselves. Classical education should be designed to draw, draw the child to the borders of their knowledge so that their elicited wonder might cause them to seek the rest and relief in understanding. Festivity. In a comparable way that we largely misunderstand wonder and leisure, perhaps our conception of festivity also misses the mark. What does it mean to have a festival? What is the spirit of festivity? Joseph Pieper, again, in his profound little book on the subject titled In Tune with the World, states, quote, In all ages, the chances are it was never easy to meet the requirement that great festivals be celebrated in the proper spirit. As the history of religions tell us, empty and wearisome pomp existed even at the Greek festivals. Nevertheless, it is peculiar to our time that we may conceive of festivity itself as being expressly repudiated. This very situation gives rise to the question and prompts us to decide for ourselves what presumably everybody already knows, namely what the essence of festivity is and what should be done so that men in our time can preserve or regain the capacity to celebrate real festives, real festives festively, a capacity which concerns the heart of life and perhaps constitutes it. What immediately comes to your mind when you hear the word festival? Perhaps you're thinking of a birthday party or a wedding celebration or a holiday. Maybe a good starting point in figuring out what a festival is and what festivity is, is by asking, what are we celebrating? Why are we party partying? And what are we observing on a holiday? Just to offer up an immediate answer, I think what ties all of these together is being, 
life. If wonder is the fearful acknowledgement of one's own ignorance about the nature of things, and if leisure is entering into a contemplative relationship with that unknown, then festivity is the enjoyment of the fact that there are things. There is something rather than nothing. And that, if you think carefully about it, should elicit joy. The highest thing within the realm of things is mankind. Mankind is in the unique position to think about questions such as, why is there something rather than nothing? And what is the purpose of the things that are here? Given our unique position within the realm of things, we have a responsibility to try to answer them. It is through the process of answering these big questions that we come to see there is a foundation to reality. Questions about the foundation flow from minds that are gifted with tools like logic and reason, which allow us to penetrate the deepest and most profound insights of existence as we begin to grope around and find the structure of the foundation. Perhaps the most profound discovery of the human mind is in recognizing that there is something terribly wrong with everything. But we can also imagine an order of things that is purified from their perversions. We can imagine an ideal. Humans seem to possess an innate sense of perfection, and we can see glimpses of the perfect form of things through the bent and distorted images of everyday existence. Our increasing sense of fulfillment is in proportion to the awareness of our imperfections and our longing for that perfect land full of perfect beauty and perfect goodness and perfect truth. Humans possess the ability to see, however dimly, past their misery into that which is the ideal type. Pieper states it like this, quote, the traditional name for the utmost perfection to which man may attain the fulfillment of his being is the visio beatifica, the scene that confers bliss. This is to say that the highest intensification of life, the absolutely perfect activity, the final stealing of all volition, and the partaking of the utmost fullness that life can offer takes place as a kind of seeing. More precisely, that all this is achieved in seeing awareness of the divine ground of the universe. Eschatological sight is not the only issue, however. Discerning the nature of earthly things through contemplation leads us to happiness. The contemplation of nature is the trace that leads us to consider its maker. Ordinary things like wine, bread, music, poetry, and art are precious because they func function as a medium through which we encounter the divine. Once again, Pieper is helpful when he says, it may be the philosopher's consideration of the whole of existence or the particular vision of the artist who seeks to penetrate the prototypal images of things in the universe or the contemplative prayer of one absorbed in divine mysteries. Whenever anyone succeeds in bringing before his mind's eye the hidden ground of everything that is, he succeeds to the same degree in performing an act that is meaningful in itself and has a good time. Creation, being, is not arbitrary. Embedded within the whole of reality are the fingerprints of God. It is through the things that have been made that we discover God's wisdom, 
power, and goodness. To not sufficiently enjoy the gifts of being, trees, rocks, oceans, mountains, caterpillars, steak, is to deny the happiness of our Heavenly Father and that he has freely given it to us. More than that, it is to deny the mediums through which we can enter into contemplation of him. And in that way, it is a self-imposed ignorance and an intentional, intentional denial of fulfillment and freedom. In short, it is foolishness. Wise men party. Of course, it is only when we use things according to their nature and their telos that we can fully appreciate the loveliness of the gift. Leisure subsists, is cultivated, and grows through resting in the gift of being, even given to the wandering mind, and jumping into the dark in a rested way, precisely because reality has earned our trust in it. We search for leisure, but also from leisure, because God has already, always given himself to us in things. We become awake to his perfect, hers, I'm sorry. We become awake to his perfect action and rest, and we become more as he is. God did not merely give us waterfalls and clouds, however. He gave us a person, the person of Jesus Christ. In this per- person, we have the perfect image of what the divine ground of being is. It is through Christ that we see the fullness of life, and it is when one is united to him by faith that one inherits eternal life. This gift of eternal existence is not abstract. It is rooted in history and the actions of one man, Jesus of Nazareth. In one sense, we could say that all the events of history hinge on Jesus' life. But the fact of a historical Jesus is not what makes him unique. It is the resurrection of Jesus which has shaped human civilization and culture for the last 2,000 years. Perhaps the Christian tradition has become so acquainted with the idea of resurrection that we fail to Uh, appreciate its gravity. Let us return to the longing of man to attain the seeing that confers bliss, or the visio beatifica. Our imaginations can conceive of an ideal type when we enter into a contemplative relationship with the world and recognize its imperfections. We can think about perfect justice when we encounter injustice. We can conceive of perfect virtue when we encounter vice. Our imaginings of paradise are more keenly shaped when we we see chaos and disorder, heartache and suffering. It is in the life of Jesus where we see the ideal type, which makes sense of the disharmony in the cosmic chorus. We find perfect justice, love, wisdom, virtue, goodness, and beauty in the life of Jesus. But we see these things through their perversions. It is through injustice that we see perfect justice, through suffering and malice that we see perfect love, through foolishness that we see perfect wisdom, through vice that we see perfect virtue, through evil we see perfect goodness, and through ugliness we see perfect beauty. Ultimately, it is through death that we see eternal bliss. In the death of Jesus, what is made clear is that non-being was overcome, and it was overcome because Jesus is life, which is why the realm of the dead could not hold him. Overcoming death was accomplished precisely by going through it. And what did it secure? A bride, the church, 
and our eternal state will be that of a wedding feast where we behold the vision of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All of history then is and has been moving towards an eternal party, an eternal festival. As I stated above, eschatology is not the only consideration. Christians have been participated, participating in limited and earthly forms of that eternal state for thousands of years. The feast of the church, wherein we celebrate the resurrection and cast our hopeful gaze towards Christ's return, is the festivity that functions as an archetype for all other festivals. It is a celebration fueled by the spirit of thankfulness for eternal life, eternal and perfect existence. The ideal type is bringing the finely tuned harmony of the divine into the disharmony of the cosmos in order to restore it once again to its blissful state. And we celebrate this through ordinary created things like bread and wine and fellowship with people. Our celebration is worship. What is festivity? It's worship. We have a greater appreciation for things because they exist only by a donation from God who is being and are being restored because of Jesus conquering death and giving us himself, who is life. Everything in the cosmos takes on a deeper significance once this is understood and the ordinary becomes a symbol of the perfection that awaits. So we can sit in joyful awe of being. Classical education, then, should be designed to draw the child to the borders of their knowledge, entering into a contemplative relationship with the unknown, to arrive at understanding, and sitting in joyful awe of being. It leads students to worship. It pulls back the curtain on the source of all being and asks them to come, taste, and see that he is good. So, is student A or B embodying the classical spirit? My argument is that student B, who is made to wonder, is set upon a trajectory that will reach the stars of being in his own life and vantage point. And it is this to educate. On the other hand, student A might know a lot, but be profoundly ignorant to the universe of things shining into his receptacle. In fact, he may be trained to ignore it and be constitutionally unopened to it in the name of classical education. My goal in presenting this paper was not just to show us a vision of how class classical education should be institutionally designed, but a call to all of us to live a life of wonder, leisure, and festivity. Thank you so much.